Great, so a really warm welcome, a warm welcome, all of you. It's, uh, as I was saying earlier, what a delight it is for, for all of us to be together and my wonderful co-teachers, David, Ying, and Kim. So I don't know, I'm, I feel kind of effusive uh, this morning. So some of you may know that um, the four of us have taught together a number of times, and we just keep on doing it because we enjoy it. And uh, we just love talking about these suttas and sharing them with others. And so that's hopefully what we're going to do these next few days. And then maybe I'll say that uh, for this morning, um, I actually need to pop out. Um, so I'll be here for the other classes, but um, I'm just here to say hello. And I leave you in the hands of my beautiful friends, David Ying and Kim. So I think maybe Ying is, is next. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Diana. It's just uh, such a delight to see some of you coming back again and again, and some, some of you who are new to this class, just welcome you all. Um, I found this course is just, I learn probably much more than what we, we are offering. Um, and hopefully this is a really a, a, a beautiful study and practice journey for all of us. So welcome. And maybe I know Kim is going to say just a couple things about who we are, how this group, what brings us together, or the different um, the different aspects of our of of what we bring to the group. But I'll say something very briefly just about the four of us. Um, just that we, as Diana made reference to, you know, we we started doing this several years ago, just out of part of our practice. And then after some time, we realized that the special thing that we found in it was this way of interacting with these sometimes opaque, sometimes difficult uh, ancient texts and bringing them into our practice, uh, you know, really integrating them with the way we practice the Dharma. And, uh, and then we started sharing it with others. And we've been really, uh, really pleased to find that so many people uh, like it. The very first time we did it, we decided our measure of success was whether there would be more students than teachers. And uh, we just, you know, we, we actually were, in, even in the beginning, we were surprised how many other people shared this weird quirk. Um, so anyway, uh, we won't introduce ourselves individually, but that's, that's what brings us together. We love this. We love sharing this. We love engaging in this as a community of practice in, these, in, these, uh, in this series. So Kim, yeah, tell us we are. Thank you, David. And also a bow to my co-teachers. I've really been enjoying these classes together, and I always learn so much. Um, suttas are very deep, and they've always been um, a meaningful stream of practice. I think they can even um, serve almost the same role as a teacher, playing the same roles as of challenging, inspiring, um, 
raising devotion and also pulling out the rug. <laughs> All those things are done by these texts. So let me say a bit about our particular class that we have. I um, had the pleasure of reading through uh, what you wrote on all of your registration forms. We do actually read that. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that we have people here from eight countries and 11 US states. And the experience level that um, you offer, we, we did have a little question about that. There's a wide range. We have people here who are just learning about these texts. They're, they're interested, but have not really delved into them much. Uh, and we also have um, people who have studied them for years and uh, have found, you know, more and more depth in them and continue to come back and find more so, and everybody in between. So that means, I think, that there will be a rich opportunity to learn from each other in the, we're going to be doing some breakout groups during these classes and you'll have a chance to um, meet fellow travelers in these uh, the journey of, of working with these texts. So I hope that will be a a rich and interesting experience. It's a chance to learn and explore. And then we also asked some questions about what drew you to the class. And simply because there are so many, we're not able to ask each of you to say it in your own words, but I did read them all and I'm summarizing because there were some themes um, among what you, what you expressed. So some people said that uh, seeing the source of teachings um, that they hear in Dharma talks helps them consolidate their understanding of the teachings. You know, they may hear a teacher summarize a text or quote from a text, but then they want to go back. They're sort of drawn, well, what does the whole thing say? And what, what's the context of all of that? So these classes have helped with that. Some people say that studying the suttas, exploring them, helps the teachings to uh, come up in their daily life practice. You know, they'll be doing something in their regular life and they'll remember a teaching that's associated with that. And that's because, of course, of conditioning our mind with reading them and we're thinking about them and reflecting. Some simply enjoy the suttas or even someone even said they felt called to learn these teachings. And many people express that it's interesting to do so and fruitful to do so with a group and community. So all of these things you may feel in various degrees in your own heart. And then a few people commented specifically on this text, turning our attention now to the Aligadupama Sutta, the um, simile of the snake. And so some people said that this text, uh, I, I particularly like the person who said it was fascinating and dense and that they were looking forward to unpacking it through this class over several sessions. And I think that's a, maybe a nice description. Others said that they are aware that the teachings on impermanence and not self are uh, deep and somewhat tricky and sometimes difficult and that it would be helpful to be with a group and to again unpack it over several days and really uh, delve into those a little bit more. Some people related it very practically to their lives I think we're in a period right now where there's a lot of change happening. Um, we don't know exactly what transition we're in, but we're definitely transitioning. <laughs> and um, maybe that brings up questions also of who we're going to be as we come out of a period of a different way of being. So we have some very practical reasons for looking at these particular teachings also. So overall, um, all this sounds great to me. It made me really want to take this class. So I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here with all of you and with my co-teachers.
So with that, I'll pass it along to Ying. Thank you, Kim. Um, can you all hear me okay? Let's do a sound check. Okay, all right. And so, um, well, here I am. I'm going to give um, a, just to share a little bit about um, maybe the intentions and the, uh, I'm a little uh, conscious of using this word, uh, uh, aims or goals for the uh, courses, uh, but they're useful. And um, so, when uh, the teachers um, put together this course, we had some uh, thoughts in mind, and hopefully this will be supportive of your learning and practice. And so they are um, intentions and they are maybe some aims of um, the courses. So I see this in three different perspectives. So maybe the first one is the, uh, from the study perspective, we uh, call this courses study and practice courses. From the study perspective, um, this sutta explores the topic of abuse in um, quite a wide range. And, you know, today we'll be starting uh, some of the views and, for example, our relationship with essential pleasures, how we hold the teachings, the Dharma, and the self, not self. Um, What are some of the skillful means to hold the teachings and how they might uh, enrich and deepen us and how they might not? And so the simile of a snake would uh, come and the other similes. And so we do hope from the study perspective um, that this will open us up uh, maybe to discover uh, some new ways and that we can relate to Dharma teachings and also see how we've been uh, holding the teachings in, in our own uh, views and in our own um, belief systems maybe. And then the second uh, aim is related to practice. And this sutta is particularly rich um, in working with the similes. And so uh, you will uh, be exposed to a rich set of similes. And so in terms of a practice, um, there's ample opportunities to learn how to practice with the similes. And maybe there's some new ways of working with uh, similes in your practice, um, meditating with them and reciting some verses uh, of them and then visualize them. Can they be brought um, to life in your practice? And so, so that's a second perspective. And then the last one has to do with um, learn and discover some views and ideas about the Buddha. I'll just say these are not the only uh, perspectives you can have, but I just highlighted the three of them. Now, some of you may have been taking this study and practice courses and reading the suttas. If the suttas that you've read um, all have certain flavors of the Buddha, and and that, you know, the Buddha was kind and and uh, wise, compassionate, and um, there are certain styles of uh, his teaching. But then as you uh, began to dive into this particular sutta, uh, maybe you'll find that that's not always so. 
And the Buddha actually, in the Susutta, uh, had um, a picture of a being, uh, someone who's not shy away using strong words. Um, the uh, Arita, the uh, character that popped in at the beginning of the Sutta, the Buddha called him the misguided man. And the Chinese Agama would just basically says, this is stupid man, <laughs> a stupid person. And um, other translations would be silly man. And the Buddha also is not shying away to very directly say that Arita's wrong grasping would lead to his harm and suffering for a long time. So how do we relate to this? And there may be multiple interpretations, understandings of this, and I'll just offer one of those. And maybe the Buddha wasn't quite interested in fitting himself into some ideas of uh, who he is or who he was. And so he offered um, uh, his responses and teachings based on what might be needed uh, by the person and by the situation. And so, so maybe the response was rather situational and, and not personal. And maybe the way of just relating how the Buddha was teaching can be a teaching itself for, uh, for us. So I'm going to pass that on to David. Thank you, Ying. And uh, I'm still admitting people from the waiting room, so I'll pass that on to one of you if it, if it comes up. Uh, okay, so let's dive in a little bit. Uh, we, we've taken over the course of these, uh, the classes we've taught several different approaches to the suttas. This is one where we're going to kind of work through it as it's laid out. And in part, that's because it sets up a narrative frame, which is also part of these texts that in itself is, is, um, is instructive. So Here's sort of the big picture in 10 minutes um, of what's going on here, or one way to at least enter it and get a sense of what the big themes are. You're familiar now because we assume that you've looked through the opening part of the sutta at least, that in this initial scene, scene, Aritta is, uh, the monk Aritta is, uh, interacts with his fellow monks, and that in a very interesting turn of phrase, uh, it's shared with us that a pernicious view has arisen in Aritta. Even here, there's a teaching. Um, Aritta isn't seen as an evil person or not um, um, fully human, but someone in which, as happens for all of us, views arise. In this case, a pernicious view to which he's strongly attached. Aritta is clinging to this view and uh, the view is wrapped up in his sense of self. And these three themes, each of them, clinging, views, self, selfing, and then associated not self teachings are the heart of, of this sutta. And in a way, the whole sutta, the whole narrative frame is introduced, um, or the whole um, frame of opening and unpacking the teachings is introduced by this theme of what do we do as practitioners when views arise, particularly pernicious views or views to which we're strongly attached or views that have their roots in desirous attachment or views that are strongly tied with our ourselves, our sense of self. Um, the particular pernicious view 
so-called that seems to have arisen here, and it's not explicitly clear, is an, a, view, a view on the part of Aritta that a monk, and this is a, this is a community of monastics, um, that a monk can engage in sexual interactions uh, and not be attached to the desire and pleasure associated with those actions. And this for a monastic, as opposed to lay practitioners, is, is, not, is not, uh, you know, not part of the, the, the monastic uh, community's commitments. We, we think that's what this is about because of the way the monks respond with the similes for sense pleasures and their dangers that Ying will talk about later this morning. And it seems also clear from some of the responses that the Buddha provides in the opening section when he finally directly meets with Aritta and says in this famous phrase, calls him, you misguided man. I would say that at least in the Pali, as it's traditionally um, glossed in English, misguided is an interesting interpretation. The Buddha's tough love, you know, among the, among the most, uh, the, the worst words he could come up with is to call somebody misguided. He doesn't say he's bad. Even saying he's silly is quite different from saying that he's an evil person. The Buddha already sees that what's going on here is that Aritta has grasped the teachings in, in, a, in a wrong way. And because he has an attachment to certain sensual delights um, that he is, uh, has developed strong sense of agency or self around. <clears throat> so we can say that what's coming up and we know at the outset of the sutta as the scene is set is that strong desire can make for the arising of very, um, very concrete sense of self that can hold quite tenaciously or persistently to views. We can see uh, in Aritta's responses, the role, and we're probably all familiar with this, that logical thought, that justification, rationalization can develop around an an understandable misunderstanding about a point of the teachings. And this helps us, I think, understand that Aritta, misguided as he is, silly as he is, stupid as he is, as Yang said in the Chinese parallel, he, we're just like him. He's one of us. We're one of him. We can recognize some of what's come up for him around the attraction of the body to sensual pleasure and delight. And we can also, in our practice, know some of the attachment to self and views that he clearly is um, you know, uh, caught up in. So because we share this with Aritta, and even though he's a monastic, there's a lot that we can learn from this, and it's entirely relevant to our work, our practices as as lay members of of a practice community. In other words, for us too, just like Aritta, views arise that we hold tight to, and they lead us back into stress, to suffering, to discontent. And just like for Aritta, for us too, there's ways of holding the arising of sensual delights and attractions of selves and of views that can be freeing. It's one of the important things about Aritta not being cast away and thrust out as a, as a bad person. When we're, when we're misguided or we grab the teachings by the wrong end, or we make unskillful use of the teachings, whether we do it willfully or because we just didn't get it, that's not a problem in this practice. We, we, we have ways, as we'll explore in the practice of the course, study 
meditation, community practice, that working with spiritual friends, such as are gathered here, that we, we have a way to work with the arising of um, views that are harmful in a community or for ourselves as individuals. Interesting, this is a monastic community. And I think some people uh, would argue, uh, certainly some of my teachers have argued that the lay practitioner's task is even a little bit more complicated, possibly more difficult, but certainly complicated in different ways than the monastic practitioner's path. Um, one of the things about living and practicing in the world is that um, we're, we're not like monks who've renounced um, the attractions of sensual delights in the same way. Um, in our path of practice, desire arises. Desire arises in the body, in part. And we're expected as lay practitioners to sort of let it emerge, interact with it, engage with it, um, but not get attached to it, to hold it lightly, to view it with wisdom, right? To be guided by wisdom and to let it come and go and pass. And this, I think, is part of what we can enter into in the sutta. This is, uh, this is the challenge as lay practitioners is to make skillful use of these teachings around such powerful things as our attraction to sensual delights, the cells that come up with that, the views that help us hold tightly onto our, our uh, suffering. So Kim. Okay, so next you'll have a chance to talk a bit among yourselves about this, um, these teachings as we're starting to interact with them. So we'll have some breakout groups. I believe Ying is setting them up. And so um, you'll have a, an opportunity to discuss this question. Why do you think the Buddha is calling Aritta a misguided man? So what is the significance maybe of this term misguided? What is going on there? Um, and so there isn't just one answer to this. And you may discover um, several different perspectives in your group, several different views, we might say. And so we're also having an opportunity to start exploring uh, that dimension of practice. So why do you think the Buddha called Aritta a misguided man based on your reading of this early part of the text? Um, I think that should be it. You'll be together for about, I don't know, 12 or 13 minutes, something like that. Um, and afterwards, we'll have a chance to debrief and ask some questions. But uh, perhaps as a little... Uh, hint as you go forward, we might think about this idea of guidance. What is guiding Aritta to make, to take his actions? And we can think about that in our own lives too. So what does it mean to be a misguided man? All right. Oh, and maybe I should say who should go first. So how about if the person with the uh, longest hair begins? And then you can just go around the group after that. Okay, so you have about 12 minutes. Uh, so here we Okay, so welcome back. Um, 
Now we'd be interested to hear if you have any comments or questions that came up in your um, time together or also on anything that was said prior to that in the, by the teachers. Um, we'd love to hear any uh, wisdom that you have to share or anything else. And yes, I see that. Um, let me just take a moment to point out that, uh, that Lisana has raised her yellow hand or blue hand. And I don't know what color um, they are on your screen, but there's a number of ways to do that down on the um, reactions. There's often an option there, or if you go to participants, um, it might be uh, available at the bottom of that screen or on the three dots. There's a n- number of different ways to raise your hand. And it's helpful if you do it like that because we have more than one screen of people. So I, I might not be able to see um, a hand going up. So with that, uh, Lisa. Hi. So I was struck by the idea that the monk is... Um, speaking from an overdeveloped sense of of self, and that wasn't that didn't jump out at me in the reading. Um, so I, I would appreciate it if you could discuss that a bit. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I have the feeling that David was a little bit foreshadowing with that comment. In that, um, it it isn't so explicit in the first um, this first scene, but. There's a lot of teaching on not-self coming up later in the sutta. And once um, we get to that, there can be a sense of looking back at the earlier part and saying, ah, that's related somehow to this this teaching. That earlier scene wasn't just a a lure to get you into the sutta. Um, So it might be that that will unfold a little bit more over the course of of the class. Sometimes the suttas are written, um, I'll just take this opportunity to say that sometimes the suttas have what's called a um, a wrapper or something. Essentially, it's a story within a story or a teaching within a teaching, and it starts with a scene, and that kind of gets our interest because it's about the people. And then there's uh, that's a vehicle for the Buddha to give a teaching. And then sometimes at the end of the sutta, I think not so much in this case, but there's it will return to the scene, and it's kind of a sandwich kind of structure. So you might, those of you who are interested in sutta study, the study side, that's often a structure that's used in the in the Buddhist teachings. So next we had Nancy with her hand up. Hi, yeah. In our group we were talking about the relevance of um Arita coming from the uh the vulture killers clan. And um, the Buddha sort of made a very clear distinction in addressing Arita that, um, you know, you've never heard me say that. Uh, I don't, haven't you heard me say exactly the opposite of that? So I think he was drawing a clear distinction between this is not my guidance. Uh, So this is guidance of either uh, something else, somebody else, or some view that is not mine. Um, so you can't attribute this to me. Um, and I don't know if the fact that they keep um, repeating that he's formerly from the tur- or the um, the vulture killer clan. I'm not sure what the relevance is of that, other than his 
views may have become cemented in uh, uh, his prior group. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting point to catch the reference to the formerly of the vulture killers, which is said several times. And um, my understanding of that is that it's, and I would welcome any comments from the other teachers, is that it's um, a re- referring to a fairly low uh, status um, position in society to be a, a killer of some type, or you know, there were certain um, trades or professions that were you know just this is just ancient Indian society that had sort of different connotations to them, and so I think it's meant to imply that he was from a group that was you know, not so revered, shall we say. And so, yes, it might be that he had gotten his values from there, or it was also just an emphasis that um, uh, he didn't have the conditioning. uh, He didn't have such good conditioning from where he was. And I would just add, uh, just, you know, uh, it's hard to know sometimes in interacting, you know, engaging with these texts, how much attention to pay to something like that. Because, this is, it could just yeah. be the clan reference may be similar to a surname and certainly in you know I, my background is largely from from the english isles from the uk but you know smith and baker are common surnames and you know the reference to those to those professions like smith a very lowly you know to be a blacksmith is typically kind of a lowly profession may or may not be significant so anyway, I think, but you point to something else, Nancy, which is that, yeah, there's, there's this kind of play between, have you ever heard me? No, this idea that misrepresenting the teachings is also a problem in the community, in the monastic community, but in the, in the practice community too. One of the things we do in the study and practice work we're doing is maintaining, sharing these teachings and also, um, you know, keeping them centered on um, you know, on the core teachings in a way that keeps us faithful to them and not find ourselves misrepresenting them. Anyway, that was interesting in your question. Just wanted to point to that. A little bit earlier, I saw um, Lila's hand up. Do you still have a comment or question? Nancy asked it for me. Oh, okay. we were in the same group. <laughs> oh, okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for asking. And now I see Kathleen's hand up. Good morning. First, I want to say I'm so excited to be in, uh, to participate in this. Um, So thank you for having this. Um, And as I'm listening to the questions, I was thinking about my own interpretation, which may be misguided. (laughs) When he was saying that the, that the obstructions may not be able to obstruct the one who practices them. And then I started thinking, is it that he's saying that the, that the, uh, that the harm caused may not happen to the one who actually practices it or to the, to the other ones around or so it would be a way of saying, it's not really harmful to me if I practice it. Um, which I told my small group earlier that I, um, I, I work with a lot of substance uh, use and addiction, and this would be a way that um, um, 
people would misunderstand the teaching of sobriety. Like it's not hurting me. It's hurting. It might be, you might be uh, um, suffering about this, but for me, this is a good thing. So. Wow. That's yeah. No, that's a quite an astute comment um, in that you've pointed out exactly how it is the desire for something can distort somehow our view of what's going on with it. We don't see so clearly. Um, I mean, the case of addiction is a very extreme form of desire. And so, yeah. And so this is, I think your interpretation is quite good, is that Arita had an idea that he he wanted to have sexual relations. That's what the commentaries say that it's referring to. And so he somehow in his mind, he constructed an argument um, about why this would be okay. Actually, the commentaries go into a little bit more detail. He had a kind of a, a logical chain where he said, well, lay people have sex and lay people can get enlightened. Therefore, having sex is not an obstruction to enlightenment. Therefore I can have sex. So he had a whole, he had a whole chain of why this worked, but he had forgotten that he was a monk and he had taken monastic vows. And so it didn't work for his situation. So but his logic and his desire, his desire had constructed this logical argument and we can see it in him. And then the harder part is to see it in ourselves is that we have, you know, our desires also distort a little bit and we, we make little justifications. Don't we do that in our own life about how you really want something? And so you figure out some way that it's actually okay. So we're asked, you know, not to condemn ourselves for that, but just to look at what's guiding us in making those choices. Yeah. I was wondering that because you kept on saying that it doesn't cause the obstruction to the one who practices it. Right. Yeah. So he might be saying, yeah, he's sort of saying I'm an exception. You know, yeah. it's, it's okay for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, Randy. I was, um, I was actually very interested in why you guys asked this question, because it seems like it is uh, jumping the gun a little bit and, um, and having us consider our thinking around this, even before we get the teachings about what is really going on. So I, I, I thought that was uh, a very interesting um, uh, tactic of you, of you guys. So I appreciated that. And for me, this brings up the faith in the Buddha. So, you know, so the Buddha says on many occasions, don't do something because I say it. But here we're getting the message, or at least I am, that um, the Buddha is saying, I have told you this on multiple occasions. So uh, you don't believe it. And now you're following a a, a different path of your own devising. And so that, um, that aspect of um, faith in, in the Buddha, just because of who he is, uh, comes into play for me. Yeah, I think the sutta does touch on um, where we place our 
devotion or where we place authority or where we place our trust in some sense. And um, I think you'll see as the sutta unfolds that there are actually multiple um, entry points. There is what the Buddha says, but we're also asked to examine the meaning for ourselves, to check it out in our lives. You'll see different um, components of that. This, uh, this sutta is complex enough that it has a lot of different facets. So, yeah, I think that's, um, I can understand that that would start to be coming up for you. I see it also. Okay, well then, maybe with that, we'll go on to delve a little farther into these uh, similes of the sense pleasures. So Ying will guide us in that. Yeah.